0: All right, well, the topic for this morning is very simple. Um, What does it mean to be a real man of God? Uh, In going through the book of 1 Timothy, many issues come up. But central to the book is the call to the men of the church to become real men of God. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to be a real man of God? Our culture, men, will tell you what it means to be a real man by their definition. But if you listen to them, you're not going to actually become a real man of God. Oh, they'll tell you you're a real man if you're as rich as Bill Gates. They'll tell you you're a real man if you're as smart as Stephen Hawking, you know, or maybe if you're as tough as Floyd Mayweather, then you're, then you're a real man. You got to be as sexy as Brad Pitt or as powerful as Donald Trump or as athletic as Calvin Johnson. You get some of that going on, maybe a couple of those traits, and then you're a Not what the Bible would call a real man. What is a real man? This sermon today is God's way of calling the men of the church to get after the things of God. And this is just actually just a taste here in chapter 2 of what's coming in chapter 3. Practically all of chapter 3 is devoted to giving us... The most detailed, descriptive, comprehensive design for a man of God found anywhere else in the Scripture. It's all laid out. Here's the man God wants you to be. But it's almost like today in chapter 2, we get a little preview. Next week, the Bible talks to the women. And there's some tough things that are going to be in that passage too. But this week, I get to talk straight to the men. I like it when I get to talk to the men because I can be a little less filtered. I can be a little more direct. It can rough them up a little bit, right? I mean, guys, are you okay with me from time to time talking straight to you? Huh? You okay with that? And women, listen, you can't skip next week now that you know that it's going to be you next week, all right? Now, don't do this whole, oh, honey, I'm not feeling too well. You take notes from me and tell me what he said. No, no. Next week, you got to be here because God's got some things to share with you. But this week, it's directed towards the men. Hey, men, what does the Bible call us to fight for in the church. What does the Bible call us to be devoted to in the church? Let's find out, then let's get after it together. But first, let's pray. Father in heaven, you call upon the men of this church, myself included, to be devoted to the things that are on your heart. If the men of the church fail, the church will fail. But if the men of the church rise up in the strength of the Lord and devote themselves to your purposes, then we cannot be stopped. Oh, Lord, call us to be about your business today and show us what that means in your name. Amen. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Guess what? There's only one verse for this sermon today. Just one verse, but don't get any ideas. It's going to be a full-length sermon. Feature film, all right? Even though it's only one verse... Settle in and take notes. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8 says this. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Let me read it again. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This is a universal call, not just here as as it's addressed to Ephesus, not just there, but the church at large, everywhere I desire that men, men should pray. Guys, write this down. Here's the first thing we're called to in the Bible today. Write this down. Men, pray. Men, pray. Where does biblical masculinity begin where does it start? Where does God's plan for you as a man begin? How do you start leading your family? How do you begin repairing your marriage? How on earth can you figure out rearing your children? What's going to change the workplace you go to? It all starts on your knees. It all begins with prayer. Men, pray. It's a call to prayer. Every year I get to go up to Harvest Elgin where they train 8, 10, 12, future senior pastors. These are men who are going to go out and plant harvest churches within the next 12 months. They'll end up all over the world. And I get to go in and speak to them every year. It's a great honor. And the first thing I say to them every year is, your prayer life better be incredible. If your prayer life is anything less than incredible, this is not going to go well. Because it starts with prayer. And men, our leadership in this church starts with prayer. Too often men are passive when it comes to prayer. I'll let my wife ask if we should pray before bed. I'll let my wife decide if we should pray before the meal. You know, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let other people decide in small group if it's time to pray. I'm not going to give any prayer requests during that time. Man, we're too passive. We're not storming the gates of heaven asking for blessings. We're not storming the gates of hell trying to set captives free. We're just content to leave the world the way we found it. That's not good enough. The Bible wants us to be men who are not content to leave this world the way we found it. And it starts, changing this world starts in prayer. He wants men every place to pray. But we don't pray. Why don't we pray? Why don't we pray? Well, we'll say we're too busy, but we know that's just an excuse. Because we're not, we're not too busy for other things. I think it's more than that, though. Sometimes guys just don't know how to pray. And let this be a message here to our small group leaders and staff members and pastors. Listen, men don't know how to pray unless someone coaches them on that. We can't expect that this area of our discipleship is going to self assemble. All right? It's like IKEA all assembly required. There's pieces with no assembly. And guys, if you've been in the faith for years and decades, you need to find a man who's never been taught how to pray and teach him how to pray. Turn to page one in the assembly manual and start putting his prayer life together because no one's ever told him how. I think men don't know how to pray. I think also we don't pray because sometimes we believe it won't change anything. We believe it won't change anything sometimes because we lack faith in God or even experience We haven't seen him do some awesome things yet. But I think on the other end, sometimes our theology is poor. I've heard it too many times and actually, sadly, from too many credible sources. I've heard people say, prayer doesn't change anything, it changes you. As if God's will is already set apart from your prayers, and your prayers have nothing to do with it, and all prayer is meant for is to get you ready for what God's already going to do. That's poor theology. That's very poor theology. It's even illogical. Prayer doesn't change anything, but it can change you. Well, wait, if it can change something, why can't it change everything? What do you mean? Does it change something or does it not change something? It doesn't make sense to say it doesn't change anything, but it does change you. That doesn't make sense. It's not logical and it's not biblical to say that prayer changes nothing. The truth is prayer changes everything. And good theology in the Bible is this. You have not because you ask not. Meaning God in His sovereignty is somehow ordained that certain things in your life will happen if you pray for it, won't happen if you don't. One-to-one correspondence, you'll get to heaven and there'll be a whole list of things that God would have done if you asked. And if you say, why didn't you do that? His response is clear, right now this side of heaven, you never asked. You never asked. Prayer changes everything. It really does. It's the most powerful thing, prayer and fasting, that you can do in your relationship to the Lord. We don't pray, though. We don't believe it'll change anything. Maybe we've tried before and it hasn't worked. So because we got burned and we really went out and we trusted Him and we prayed, and then, and then He said, no, then we're hurt. And because we're hurt, we can't do that again. I can't do that again. I asked, I got my hopes up, and then that person it didn't come around or, or the thing didn't get fixed or or nothing got better, it even got worse, and you know what, I tried that and it doesn't work. And we get closed off to the Lord because He said no, or He said wait. We don't pray. Prayer displays humility before the Lord, shows that we need Him. Prayer also shows love for God, because we'll come to Him with things that mean a lot, but love for others, because we'll lift others up when we've reached the end of what we can do to help them. We'll pray. Prayer shows humility. It shows love. It shows submission. Submission to God. Understanding he's sovereign and I'm not. He can do things I can't. It's submission to God. Prayer also displays submission to man. Understanding that you're not in charge of everything. That there are people who are. And I'm not going to go on Facebook and rail against our government. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray. Because I'm under their leadership. And God's over them. So I'm going to go to a higher authority, and and I'm going to ask for things to get changed. Prayer shows submission to men. It also shows submission to God. What is a fully functioning biblical prayer life made of? Well, when I went through the teachings of Christ, we spent a whole two weeks on prayer. And here's what came from that. These are what what we call the gears of prayer. Um, and if you have all of these gears in your prayer life, you have a fully functioning biblical prayer life. If you have even a, a gear or two out, you're you're... Prayer life is not fully biblically functional. It starts on the left with boldness. Jesus called us to say to this mountain, be moved into the sea. Here's a picture of a mountain. This mountain, I would say, is fairly heavy. What's the heaviest thing you've ever lifted in your life? What's the heaviest thing you've ever moved? I moved a piano once uphill on a street. And then I felt like I was going to die at the end. I tasted blood in my mouth after I moved this piano up a street into the garage. I laid down on the couch and said goodbye to my children. And it was on wheels. Imagine trying to pick that thing up. And yet how boldly are we supposed to be praying? Jesus said, ask that that thing not only gets picked up an inch, but flies through the sky into the sea. That's how bold and impossible your prayer request should be. What's the toughest thing you're asking God to do right now? What is your boldest prayer right now? If it's to bless those chicken nuggets your kids are eating, hey, those things need a lot of prayer, but I don't think it's going to work. Is that it? You praying for food? What are the bold requests? What are the mountain-moving, mountain-flying-through-the-air prayers? You're getting on your face, and you're asking for a different world the next day if God says yes. What are you asking Him that only He can do? Anything? We're supposed to pray boldly, but that's not it. We're also supposed to pray confidently. This is very important. I think this is This is the biggest takeaway I had when I went through this two-part series. The Lord really worked on me in this area. After you get down and you ask for the impossible to be done, there's going to be a duration between when you ask and when God responds, usually. How are you to conduct yourself in the meantime? Jesus says, when you ask, believe that you have it. That's confused a lot of Christians because we know God's not going to always say yes. So why am I supposed to walk around and how am I supposed to walk around assuming I've got a yes when I don't know yet? The point is, while you're waiting, assume that God is not just able, but willing. Walk around like you have a heavenly father up in the universe who is willing and able to tell you yes. Treat him like a good father, not a stingy father who barely ever gives you things that you need. Treat him like a powerful, willing, loving Heavenly Father. The truth is, you're supposed to ask for mountains to fly through the sky, then you're supposed to walk around like you have a yes until you hear otherwise. You're supposed to tell other people, I believe God is able and I believe he's going to do this. That's the confidence you're supposed to have in prayer. That's the confidence you're supposed to speak to others about in prayer. But, but, I think too often Christians ask teeny-weeny, wimpy, little, pathetic prayers that require no faith, and then they believe that they're going to get a no. Even the little things they ask for, they walk around like God's never going to say yes. They have no expectation on an awesome, sovereign God of the universe. They assume it's a no unless they hear otherwise. Is that you? Is that you? Have you seen those credit card commercials for Capital One? where they try and show you how other credit card companies always say no when you try and use your points. Check this out. Here's one of those commercials. Yeah, I'd like to redeem my credit card miles to the finals in St. Louis. Hmm. No! Go from no to no hassle with Capital One No Hassle Rewards. Fly any airline with no blackout dates. What's in your wallet? I think that for Christians, functionally, you think that's God in heaven. You're praying like that's what's waiting for you in heaven. No. No signs posted all over the room. Maybe once in a great while God'll squeak out a yes just to keep you happy, but most often you expect a oh, no. That's not confident praying. It's not biblical praying. We're supposed to pray boldly and we're supposed to pray confidently, but that's not it. We're also also supposed to pray humbly. All right? What does that mean? That means I want these mountains thrown into the sea. I believe you're going to do this. But even if you don't, I will still love you. I will still serve you. I will still follow you. I'm not my will, but yours be done. That's humility. Here's the thing, though. I think sometimes Christians only put the humility gear in their prayer life. Father, whatever you want is what I want. Do what you want to do. All I want is your will to be done. Amen. Where's the boldness? Where's the confidence? A plus for humility, F minus for boldness. And yet sometimes Christians put the bold gear in, Move the mountains. But do whatever you want. You probably won't do it. So where's the confidence gear? Where's the, in the meantime, I'm walking around like my father wants to say yes. You see, you can be bold in your prayer life and confident and humble at the same time. You don't need to remove gears to to try and pretend to be more spiritual than other people. I'm just only humble. You should be bold and confident too. Bold, confident, humble. The next one is loving. Uh, Do you know that the Bible says, husbands, that if you aren't loving your wives appropriately, it hinders your prayer life? Do you know, children, that if you're at war with your parents, God's not going to listen to you in prayer? I just imagine some kid coming to youth group Sunday night and being like, Oh, Lord, go to work helping me to find that special someone. I want to marry a good... And God's like, yeah, you just cussed out your parents last night. Well, what does that have to do with anything? If you're at war with them, you're at war with me, and I'm not going to listen to you ask me for things while your relationships are broken. The same is true for you. If you've got a broken relationship with somebody else, your relationship with God is broken, prayer life comes to a halt. Unresolved conflict in your life will hinder your prayer life. You've got to have the love gear in the prayer life with other people to keep it moving forward. Here's the next one, persistence. What does that mean? It means Jesus says, keep on asking. Don't give up. I asked for the mountain to fly through the sky. I even believed it would happen. I told God, even if it doesn't happen, I'm fine. And I'm being friendly with my wife. But you know what? It's taken too long, so I give up. You forgot the persistent gear. You forgot the gear at the end that's supposed to keep turning and turning and turning. The Bible says you're supposed to knock on God's door like a shameless, annoying, persistent Intruder at midnight. You're supposed to go to his door at, you're supposed to be as barging in as you can possibly be until you get what you desire. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 62, 67, it says this On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who, this is a portrait of prayer, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Hey, you take no rest. You give him no rest until he dot, 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 fill in the blank. I love hearing our small group leaders leading the charge of prayer. I had a small group leader call me this week. Hey, we, our small group wants to rent the building. Just use it one night. We're going to have an overnighter. And I'm like, overnighter? Those are like for high schoolers. No, 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 we're just going to pray. We're going to be there all night. We're going to pray. I'm like, wow. Another small group person called me and said, hey, our small group wants to go to high schools in the area and just pray for those high schools. Where should we go? And I'm like, wow, yeah, let's get after that. Let's get praying. And men, men, let's lead the charge. Let's not sit back, drop back 10 yards, punt the prayer ball to the women and wait for them to pick it up and run with it. You get after it. You lead the way. Men, pray. Here's the next one, number two, men Lift up holy hands. Men, lift up holy hands. It says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands. What does that mean? Well, lifting holy hands is, is another portrait of prayer in the Bible. So it's kind of a synonym, but it can mean other things too. So he's saying, men, pray. He's saying, lift up holy hands, which is also a way to pray. But there's depth of meaning to this. They're lifting up hands to God. They're doing it in a more of a public setting. So this is like the gathered church. Uh, this is like in the temple back then. The men, together in the same place, would lift up their hands and pray to the Lord. But they weren't just lifting their hands, they were lifting up holy hands. Um, in the Old Testament, before the men would worship and the priests would serve, they would consecrate themselves by washing. So they would wash, they'd wash their hands, they'd wash their faces, they'd they'd wash. And in fact, the Lord required that washing to, to make a person ceremonially clean or pure or holy, okay? But here's the thing, that's supposed to actually be symbolic of what's going on in the heart. So it's not just like God said, I want all the men in my presence to have scrubbed their hands before dinner. It's more than that. The washing of the hands and the face on the outside, is supposed to depict what's going on on the inside before anyone appears before a holy God. Men lift up holy hands, cleansed. The word holy means set apart from sin. Meaning it's not enough for the men to go through the motions of prayer. We have to present ourselves before the Lord as a holy man of God. Meaning we can't cherish our sin on Tuesday and then appear before God on Sunday with stained, filthy hands, he won't accept that. Man, we're supposed to lift up holy hands in prayer. Uh, but lifting up holy hands also could, could describe worship. So Nehemiah 8.6, we'll put that on the screen, says this. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see there how lifting up holy hands now is part of the worship experience too. When you put all this together, basically what you get is, men, we're supposed to be together engaged and active in prayer and engaged and active in the worship part of the gathered assembly of God. And we're supposed to do it with love toward one another. It's a together thing. It's not an only me thing. Um... 1 Peter one fifteen to 15-23 really describes this type of holiness the Bible is going for. It says this, "...but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold." but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Listen. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Wow. Holiness is being set apart by Christ, the Lamb of God, washed of all sin, so that what comes of it? Sincere brotherly love with all those around you. That's the holiness that we're going for. Men, we've got to pray, and men, we've got to lift up holy hands. I think often it's the women in the church who are more engaged during the worship, and the men are inclined to be more passive. Sometimes men don't even sing. Men, I get it. We don't like to sing, do we? Not when other people are around. I mean, singing is just strange, and maybe we don't have great voices, and it's a little weird, and when else in life do we actually just burst out into singing? You know, maybe in our car when no one's around. You know, I don't know, but men just don't sing all the time, right? And so church is a unique opportunity for men to do something that they find uncomfortable. But we're supposed to lift up holy hands. We're supposed to be engaged with the God who loves us. We're not supposed to just sit there arms folded, passively, and, and have nothing going on between us and God during church. When we first launched the church uh, at, our, at our first building, I actually, on a Sunday morning, felt like the people were kind of dull. They, the fire hadn't been lit yet. The music was started, but they're all acting a little tired. And I was thinking of going up front and saying something. And then I, I literally saw a guy do this. He was like this, and then he went, mm-hmm. <laughs> And he actually swayed side to side during the worship and then crossed his arms again. And I was like, God, don't strike him with lightning. I'll go up and say something. And I got up. I read from the book of Hebrews where it says, hey, hey, our God is a consuming fire. Worship him with reverence and awe. God is calling you men to not be passive during worship. I get it. It it, it takes time to grow in worship. When When I was raised, I was Catholic. So we learned that worship, you just follow the rules. Sit, stand, kneel, say this. But, you know, then I got saved. And after that, I went to this church where people actually, they did this. It's called clapping. And I looked around. They were doing this in church. And I was like, I can do this? And then I went to Moody Bible Institute and in the grad school, there was people from many different backgrounds, church backgrounds. So in the grad school chapel, we were singing, and I actually saw someone do this. And I was like, that man has a question. Who's going to call on him? <laughs> no one's calling on him. He just left his hand in the air for the whole song. then I still saw someone put both hands in the air. And I was like, you can do that? And so one day I tried it. And it was great. And then I tried both of them. And it was great, but it was wooden. It was like I, didn't, I hadn't done it before, so it felt strange. And listen, over time, I've grown as a worshiper of the Lord. My personality type, I'm not going to like weep on Sundays and convulse on the floor. That's not me. But, but I felt like over time, I felt like I've now become myself on Sunday. If I feel moved by something, I can hold my hands up. Or if I feel in agreement with something, I can put a hand in the air. I feel like I'm now free to actually just be myself in worship. And there's no rules where I have to like stand a certain way and and not move and get all, you know, robotic. You know what I mean? Hey, maybe you're growing in worship and in your expression to the Lord. I would just say the Bible calls upon you men to lift up holy hands. Let's lead that. Men, pray. Men, lift up holy hands. Third, there's a few things not to do now. Men, number three, stop erupting. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger. Without anger. I saw a picture this week of the angriest cat on the planet. You want to see it? Angriest cat on the planet. There he is. The family tried to make the cat look a little more lovable, so they, they tried putting him in a box with some flowers. Didn't work. They tried putting him before a meal. Maybe food would make him happy. They dressed him up a little bit. Looks like he's going to kill you. How do you sleep with that thing roaming around your house at night? Guys come to church all the time with their angry faces on. Angry, angry. Because men have been taught that you tell it like it is and you're a real man. You're tough if you can, you can share your frustration with people and put people in their place. And There's a lot of things that make us angry, right? People make us angry. Objects make us angry. Technology makes us angry. Animals make us angry, right? Anger is actually not a sin. Anger is actually very useful because more often than not the thing that gets you angry is a good thing. You're right. That person shouldn't have said that. You're right. That guy is driving like an idiot. You're right. Your child shouldn't talk to your wife that way. But here's where we go wrong. Anger anger is meant to be a tool for construction, not destruction. Listen, anger is not a problem solver. It's a problem detector. Men go wrong when you think that anger in you is a problem solver, and you unleash it on your family or your coworkers or your church. It's not a problem solver. Anger is a problem detector. And when that anger gets you boiled and gets you on fire, there is a problem. But the solution is not the anger. It's just the detection. The Bible' is very clear. About anger. We'll put Proverbs 16.32 up on the screen. It says this. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Did you catch that? The mighty guy. The tough guy. The strong warrior who can't control his temper. Weaker than the guy who's biting his tongue. Measuring his words. Treating his wife with respect. Weaker, stronger. We're told that the stronger guy is the angrier guy. The guy who lays into that person is the stronger guy. Nope. The Bible says it's the guy who can control his anger, who's stronger than the weak dude who can't. Remember that. Remember that next time that anger boils up inside of you. It's there for a good purpose. But it's the strong man who uses the anger To construct something helpful. It's the weak man who unleashes his anger and can't stop his tongue from sinning. In fact, the Bible says that he who rules his spirit is better than he who can conquer a whole city. Oh, I led the assault on Baghdad. Took the whole force in there and conquered the city. Yeah, but you can't control your temper. So you're wimpy compared to the guy over there who's got his spirit in check. Puny. Man, we've got to stop erupting. In in Ephesus, to which this letter was written, the men were erupting. They weren't praying, they weren't lifting holy hands, they were bickering, they were arguing, they were wearing that angry face to church, they were letting each other have it over doctrinal issues, over issues of worship, over leadership. There was a power struggle going on. Prayer fire, the pilot in the furnace had gone out. It was cold, it was angry, it was loud. And it happens in churches all over. This is a picture of a volcano. Check it out. A volcano, when it erupts, it'll spew ash 12, 14 miles up into the sky. And that's what's going on in many churches right now. You've been to churches where that's happened. Maybe no one has ever sat down with the men and said, Hey, we don't do that in this church. We don't conduct ourselves like that in this church. We don't talk to each other even when we're mad like that. In this church. Um, Here's another volcano. You bring that to your small group. You bring that to an elders meeting. You bring that to a staff meeting. People are going to get hurt. Man we've got to stop erupting. I've heard stories from churches. And been a part of churches in the past. Where anger just gets out of control. I, I heard one leader say about another leader. I want to throw him through a window. At a church meeting. I've heard of one deacon throwing coffee on another deacon in a deacons meeting punches have been thrown because a window was opened up to ventilate a stuffy room one man who is a leader threatened to leave a church because a shed lock got broken at vbi i can't take it anymore it's a shed stop acting like a big baby one past, I was, one of my elders told me at a previous church he was at that a pastor brought a gun to a meeting because he was ready to end another man who was getting on his nerves. That's how blindly angry even elders and pastors can get at fellow Christians. Thankfully, that person was sent home and nothing happened. But this is what goes on in the church. If men can't get their anger under control. Man, listen, we need to lift up holy hands. We need to pray. And if we're going to do that, we have to stop erupting. Now, we're going to get angry. We're going to have conflict. We're going to, we're, going to feel, well, we're going to come here to church, and we're going to feel like choking somebody else. All right? It's going to happen. So what do we do with that? Well, that brings us to the last one. It says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So write this down. Men, resolve conflict. Men, resolve. Resolve conflict. You're going to have conflict. You have to know how to resolve it biblically. We can't be quarrelsome. We have to learn how to resolve conflict. I want our church, I want the men in our church, to get an A-plus in conflict resolution. I went to our leader team, I think it was three years ago, 40 people, leaders of small groups, staff members, and I said hello everyone, you're all leaders in this room, and I need to sadly report that we as leaders are not getting an A-plus in conflict resolution in this room. I said, we're not getting a B. I said, I don't think we're getting a C. We had some leaders who were not being mature, who were not controlling their temper. We had a leader who just left the church without even sending an email. And small group's like, do we have a small group tonight? Oh, he left acting like a baby. Thankfully, we were able to to broker some sort of a reconciliation with him before he left. But listen, I had to tell our leaders, if we're going to get an A-plus in conflict resolution as a church, it starts here among the leaders. And frankly, it starts among the men. Do you want to get an A-plus at conflict resolution? Do you want to be mature when there is a problem with somebody? A very real justifiable hurt, do you want to get an A-plus in resolving it? Let me share with you how to do it. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It gives us the downward spiral when you lack, when you don't resolve conflict, and it also gives us the upward spiral when you do. Let's take it a word at a time. It says here, Let all bitterness, bitterness. What is bitterness? Um, Bitterness can be represented by this lemon. If you put it in your mouth, you'd probably make a face like this, right? Sour. Sour and, you know, makes your lips pucker and makes your cheeks all... You give give a baby a lemon and you put it on YouTube and you'll have a viral video because the faces they make when you put a lemon in there. All right, that's the idea of bitterness. Bitterness is the first step to realizing you have a problem with someone. When they come in the room, when they call you on the phone, when you get the email from them, there's a sour taste in your heart. It, there's just a sourness. There's just something not right. It, it just, you're not giving them your full kindness. You're not as courteous. You're kind of quiet. You know, it, it feels small, but this, this is where you're at. Bitterness. The problem is if you don't take care of it when it's at the bitterness phase, it goes to the next phase, which is what? Bitterness and wrath and anger. What's wrath and anger? Wrath and anger is a boiling pot on the stove. The the word literally means to boil. Wrath and anger. You didn't take care of it when there was a sourness, so now when they come around, you're just hot. You're you're red, you're biting, you don't even want to say anything, so you're biting your tongue, you're grinding your teeth. There is anger. Your temper is flaring. It's still mostly inside. Still mostly inside but you're letting it get to this point, And the fire's not going down. You are boiling and boiling and boiling. And if you don't take care of it at this phase, then it goes on to clamor. Clamor is a very loud word. Here's a picture of a megaphone. Clamor is when it gets loud. When it gets loud. Meaning you, you let the bitterness settle in and you let your heart boil, and then there came an altercation. Okay, where usually with the person where it just, it just comes out. And voices are raised! And arms are thrown in the sky. Have you had this happen recently? Have you raised your voice at another person recently? Fellow Christian? That's clamor. You you didn't take it. You didn't take care of it here. So it got to here. And then it went there. Now after the altercation, after the blow up, now you've got a problem because other people heard it. And and that other person is telling people about it. So then it goes on from clamor. It goes to slander. Slanders the cell phone. Slanders the cell phone. Slanders the. I got to tell you what. I got to tell you what she said to me. I got to tell you what he said to me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he told you that. Well, I'm going to tell you now. I'm building my coalition against this person. Now I'm slandering them. Now I'm I'm saying things about them that paint them in an unfavorable light. And I'm promoting my side of the story because I need a team. I need a team against this person because I'm not giving up the war until I win. That's slander. That's slander. And you didn't stop it here, so it got to here, and then it went to the shouting, and now it's at the phone. But if you don't stop it here, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Where does it go next? It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This is malice. The word for malice means to injure. You didn't take care of it when it was small. Things blew up. You weren't willing to reconcile. Now you're hurting that person with the words that you say or you even feel like hurting them. If you had a chance, fist clenched, this is... This is malice. This is how you feel about people in your life right now if you haven't resolved conflict. This is how people walk into churches every week. This is why the men need to resolve conflict. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You see, if we resolve conflict, where do we go? Well, we go... Verse thirty two, be kind, even with someone who you're upset with. Be tender hearted instead of cold hearted. Be forgiving, even if they've hurt you, as God in Christ forgave you. If the men understand this, if the men embrace this, men, if we help our wives embrace this, our church is going to be indestructible. If we fail here, the church will fail. It'll break apart, wither. We have to be able to resolve conflict in a mature, godly manner. Conflict breaks prayer apart. Prayer doesn't work unless conflict is gone. You see? So this is all tied up. Men, what does it mean to be a man of God? We have to pray. We have to lift up holy hands and be engaged with our Lord together with our fellow brother. We've got to stop erupting at one another. We actually have to get some things fixed so that we can get back on track with the prayer and everything that's important to God. Hey, listen, men, if we get after this together, this church can't be stopped. Nothing can come against us. The gospel will spread rapidly and be honored, and we won't get all immersed in this civil war where it takes hours and hours for our leaders to pick the bodies off of one another in the brawl. We'll be able to focus on prayer, getting the gospel out, unified, together. We'll be able to make a lot of ground. But we've got to be committed to it. And the Bible is calling the men first to get after this. Next week, we'll talk to the women. As the men were all off brawling, things you can imagine were not healthy with the women either in Ephesus. So next week, we'll talk about the women. We'll talk about some things that God calls the women to be about in the church. And then we'll move on to chapter 3, which goes in greater detail on men. I think we should close this message with a word of prayer, giving you a chance to pray to the God who loves you as we're being commanded to do today. Let's just close our eyes and let's bow our hearts and let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you call upon us as men to lead and to start that leadership in prayer. You call us to lift up holy hands in worship without anger, without quarreling. So here we are, Lord, praying to you asking that you would bless us as men who desire to follow you. And Lord, I just pray right now if there are men in this church who are struggling to resolve conflict, men who are perhaps boiling over or worse, even holding the knife, teach them to forgive, remind them they are forgiven people. May your great love and forgiveness prompt them to do likewise. Remind us that if we don't love our enemies, we become our enemies. Help us, Lord, to resolve conflict in this church. Teach us, Lord, to direct the anger within us toward righteous ends. Help our men to have zeal, to see the world change, Lord. Make us not passive, but help us with that zeal and passion to be righteous and holy pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us as men to worship you as we pray to you and hear us from on high and answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness. O oh Lord, raise up in this church men of all ages who are set on doing your will and being after your own heart. We pray that because of that, this church will be unstoppable. We pray this in your name.